All right, we return now to Hebrews chapter 2. And a lot of the themes of the song we just sang we're going to find in today's text. And primarily that one about when Satan tempts me to despair. Uh, the remedy to that is to look to Jesus. And that's very much what our author is telling us today. As we come back to our text for today, I would uh, remind you of where we have been uh, for quite some time, walking through Hebrews, particularly chapter 2. You know, the theme of chapter 1 was Christ is greater than the angels, and that was established uh, over and over again, mostly that Christ is the eternal Son of God, and angels are created servants. That was the main theme of chapter 1. But in there, there are hints of where he's going to go in chapter 2, which is reference to like Psalm 2, uh, that he will be the inheritor of all the nations. Psalm 110, for unto which angel the author says, did God ever say, you are my son, take your, uh, take your seat at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool. I started to go to the wrong verse, apologize about that. But again, this idea that he rules and reigns is there established in chapter 1, as he quotes from Psalm 2, as we said a moment ago, and Psalm 110 right there, the promise of, uh, Christ reigning until all his enemies are put under his feet. Uh, so all these promises are given to us in the first chapter. And the first chapter ends as we have it. Of course, these were not these chapter divisions and verse divisions were not original to the text. But it ends with this idea of, again, reiterating that angels are ministering servants. They are not the reigning Son of God. The author comes back in chapter 2 to this theme of Christ is greater than the angels. And he picks up that theme of ruling and reigning. And that's what we've been looking at for some time. Verse 5, For He has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. It's not angels who will rule the age to come. It is Christ who rules the age to come. And then He turns to Psalm 8. And I remind you of this because it has implications for the rest of the chapter. Psalm 8, He says, is a psalm of David, of course. And David says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, of course, this is David looking back to creation. Man made lower than the angels, given glory and honor in terms of the sense of being in dominion, if you will, over the created order. Man being put, Adam in particular being put, if you will, as in dominion over the garden. And yet all that was lost, marred in some uh, way in the fall and the resulting curse. And yet this text, this author tells us that David, when he said these things, was also looking forward to the Messiah, who of this would be said again, that he was made lower than the angels by taking on flesh, becoming a man, uniting full and true humanity to His divinity, that He became a man, was made in that way lower than the angels for a time. He would be crowned with glory and honor through suffering and exaltation, and that in this way all things would be placed under His feet. And again, we can just walk forward through it again if we wanted to, but He says and when we say all things, we mean literally all created things are under His feet. Everything. There is nothing that is not put in subjection to Him. And it gives us the interpretation of that. For we have seen Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And then, of course, we looked at verse 10 and how it was fitting for God to do it this way. 
fitting. It was right. It was appropriate that this would be the way God would do it. John Owen goes a little further than that, or maybe clarifies it a little bit, when he says when we say that it's fitting, we don't simply mean that it was the best way. We mean ultimately it was the only way. If God was going to reconcile us to Himself, fallen sinners, to a holy and righteous God, it had to be done in this way. Now he's going to unpack that in the verses and chapters to come. We've looked at a little bit, a little bit of it along the way that he had to be a faithful and merciful high priest. In this way, he had to be make, made like us. That's what it tells us. It says, for the one who consecrates, that's him, Christ, and the one he consecrates, that's us as believers, are all of one. We are the same. That's a principle established in the Scriptures. A high priest must represent the people faithfully. He must be from them and like them. And so in this way, Christ became a man. He became like us. Now, there is uh, a great difference, right, in how he entered the world from how we enter the world. I mean, it was through birth, but a miraculous and supernatural birth, the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, that's a difference. And, of course, that difference is essential, isn't it? Because he was born without sin. Can't say as David did, in sin my mother brought me forth. That cannot be said of Jesus. And unlike us, yes, he was tempted and tried in all ways, and yet without sin. And again, all this is absolutely required to keep both aspects of his work intact. That he would be like us, a faithful high priest, able to sympathize with us, and yet the spotless Lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world. Both those things united in this work. And so we've looked at all that. Then we looked at these three uh, verses that the author gives us to establish this from the Old Testament on. And of course, there's a couple of, uh, there's one reference from Psalm 22 and a couple of references from Isaiah 8. And we walk through those. They're very difficult and complicated and say a whole lot more than simply he was made like his brethren. There's a whole lot of theology in those scriptures used, but at their most basic sense, they are saying the Old Testament declares that he was to come and be like his brethren and that he would identify with us and that he would declare our name amongst the people of God. But notice that last reference in verse 13. It's important to remember this as we get ready to move forward because it says, Here am I. Now this is Isaiah speaking, and this is a very complicated way that this author is using it. We're not going to go back into that. Um, But again, here I am, or here am I, and the children whom God has given me. Now these are the children of God adopted into the family of God. Now Isaiah in the most basic way, is talking about his own children who have been named by God and are signs of what God is doing in faithfulness to His promises to His people. And now this author says, it's as if Jesus said these words. Here I am and the children who belong to God, the adopted children of God, who are given uh, to Him and in a sense Christ is stewarding in this work who He calls His brethren. So there's a parallel there between the children and the brethren. That's the same group of people that is believers, that is us. Now that's going to be very important because he moves into today's verse, he's going to use that term again, children. And we spoke last week, again I'm not going to go back into it, about the significance of Isaiah seeing the children as a sign of God's promise and presence and work in his day, a day that seemed unfaithful. 
And again, I think the promise here is God is at work through His people. They are, their very presence in the world is a sign that God is keeping His promise and that He is saving people by His grace, even in the midst of an unfaithful generation. And I think we can look around us today and see that we're living in an unfaithful generation, and yet God is still, wherever His gospel is being proclaimed, is saying, I'm still at work. My promise is still good. And so again, we end with this word last week of children, and we're going to pick it up again today. Let's read our text again. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Christ, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, as we look at this text today, I want us to look at three points. First of all, Christ, the partaker of humanity. Second of all, Christ, the disarmer of Satan. And third, Christ, the liberator of the brethren. And my friends, we ought to be thankful for every one of those points, although that first point leads necessarily uh, to the second and third. So, Christ, the partaker of humanity. We want to begin where the author begins. We've covered this ground, but if the Holy Spirit seems fit or sees it fit to reiterate something, we shouldn't be ashamed to reiterate it too. We need to hear it. We need to focus on it. It's important. He reemphasizes the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now, my text says, inasmuch then. That's a clear callback to what's just been said. Inasmuch then is what's been said. Let's focus on this. The recall is given to us stronger in the SV and NASB. It uses the word therefore. We've spoken in the past about how therefore is a good reminder to go back and see what it's there for, right? To see what the author is summing up or tying into what's already been said. And so we see that here. Since what we have said is true, which is what? That God found it fitting to send His Son into the world to redeem people through His death. That's the mission. That's what He came to do. Christ Jesus entered the world to save sinners. How could He do it? He had to die. He had to suffer and die. We've already heard that in this chapter. He had to suffer and die. That is what He was to do. Now we might ask, why? Well, we've already said it, haven't we? He must not only be the faithful high priest, but He must also be the sacrificial lamb, spotless and acceptable, perfect. He must have both these roles. And so if He's going to be made perfect for the mission, the Scripture says He must suffer, even suffer unto death. Even suffer unto death. That's how Paul says it, that He became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. So He came into the world. He took on uh, humanity. He became a man. He even was obedient to death. He was obedient in all things, even unto death, and even the death of the cross with its curse and its terrors. He became obedient to that because the mission required it. He became perfected for His priesthood, made complete for this priestly role which He would uh, take on behalf of His people. So that's what the Scriptures tell us, and that it is not possible without the Incarnation. It's the only way. And I'm going to ask you to continue to remember that because when you watch these shows on the History Channel that put doubt that there ever was an Incarnation or the Old Testament ever promised an Incarnation, we've dealt with that time and again. My friends, the Scriptures tell us there was no other way. He had to become like us. He had to suffer. He had to die. He couldn't die as 
God, he had to take on a humanity to go to his death. That's just a simple truth. And so we recognize this. So it's only possible because of the incarnation. And that's what today's text is reiterating. Inasmuch as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. Now, the Greek actually says it the reverse of that, blood and flesh. And as much so as, he, as we are partakers of blood and flesh, then what does that mean? He's going to have to become a partaker of blood and flesh. He must also become a man. And when we speak about things like being flesh and blood, this is a way we say it in a colloquial sense of being human. When we say, well, after all, we're only flesh and blood, we mean after all, we're only human. And that's what this means. As we are human beings, as we are flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in being human. Now that's what it tells us. He became a man. Inasmuch as we are blood and flesh, He became blood and flesh. Christ, eternally divine, would add to Himself a human nature, not subtracting any of His divinity. Full, perfect, and true divinity, yes, eternally. But now adding to that perfect, true, and full humanity. Both united in one person. Now all of that is what we've been looking at. All of that's what we've been walking through and studying and thinking about. And all the things that it says that He did for us in this way are given to us in the previous chapter and two-thirds, whatever we are through this chapter. What does it say? It says that He by Himself purged our sins. He purged our sins. That He came that He might taste death for us. That He is leading many sons to glory. He said all these things. That He is the one consecrating His people in holiness. Now all that is what Christ is doing. And all of those things rely on pictures from the Old Testament priesthood. All these things. If you're a Jewish believer, as you're reading these things, you're recognizing what the Old Testament says about all these things. What does it mean to purge sins? Well, you know something of the Day of Atonement and what the high priest did. What does it mean to consecrate the people? Again, that's the work of the high priest, right? Over and over again, we recognize that what is being said of Christ here is referencing back to the Old Testament priesthood. And Hebrews relies on that picture over and over again. It's the reason God gave it to us. God gave us the Old Testament. He gave us all these pictures, glorious truths, that we would understand the fullness of what Christ Jesus offers us. And so we see it here. All those things pointing to Christ. When Paul says that the end of the law is Christ, he means it. The telos, all of it aimed at pointing to Christ. It was like the schoolmaster. Right, that led us to Christ. All these pictures that were given. And so again, all these are important, but it says that He likewise with us shared in blood and flesh. Why? That through death He might destroy Him who had the power of death. Now we're going to unpack that in just a moment, but think about this. This is building on the sacrificial system. Christ had to come and die. It's building on those pictures that that theology, but it's going now a step beyond and saying that He didn't just come to uh, purge our sins. He didn't just come to be our captain of salvation. He didn't just come to sanctify or consecrate us. He also came to destroy our enemy. To destroy our enemy. The one who this says 
had the power of death, that is the devil. And so that brings us directly to our second point. He became a, first a partaker of humanity, that is true, but he also became or came to be the disarmer of Satan. Now, the author roots the activity of Jesus coming in blood and flesh in order to die. That's important. That's a clear, important point that he's making. If he's going to be our high priest, he has to do that. If he's going to be the perfect Lamb of God, he has to do that. But there's something else said here, isn't there? That he came to destroy the devil, the one who had the power over death. Now, we have to be careful with this. We want to walk through carefully here what's said because there's many things uh, that might kind of confuse us or we might have questions about the way this is worded. And those are good things to think about. First of all, we want to start by declaring what we know to be true. God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over all things. When this says that the devil has the power of death, it does not mean he holds that power above God. It does not mean that he is in absolute sovereign control of death. God is in control of all things. God is sovereign. The Bible tells us this over and over. The Old Testament tells us that God is over death. So we have to think about what this is telling us. In fact, as we think about it, this word for power, kratos, it actually means in Greek to have power in terms of working. Working. It's a, it's a complicated word. It does mean to have power, to have some sense of dominion, but it also means to be working something. It means to be working something. The Word Study Dictionary puts it this way. It's more closely related to the idea of strength. So it is power. It is some sense of dominion, but it has more to do with his strength being or his weapon, his power being that he holds this weapon of death, that he holds this, uh, if you will, strength that is found in death. We're going to look at this a little bit now. I want you to think about it. So Satan's strength or power is found in death death. Now, we know in the scriptures that Satan is closely tied to death because Satan is closely tied to sin, and the wages of sin is death. We know this. And so that shouldn't surprise us, but again, that word is a little confusing to us because it gives the idea in some sense that Satan has authority over death, and that isn't what it's saying. We need to be careful about this. He wields death as a weapon in his rebellion against God. That's what it's really telling us here. Now, uh, how can we think about this? Well, uh, Jesus himself in John's Gospel calls, uh, says of Satan that he was a murderer from the beginning. He was a murderer from the very beginning. It's the same passage where he calls him a, a liar. But he says he was a murderer from the very beginning. And that's in John eight forty four, And we can see that because where do we first encounter Satan? Except right at the very first pages of the Scriptures, right? In the Garden of Eden. And what is his desire there? He's already fallen. We know all of this. He's there as a tempter. But what is his aim? His aim is to convince mankind. Uh, we see here we're talking about Adam, right? And Eve. To convince them to join him in his rebellion against God. But what is the necessary consequence of rebellion against God? means entering sin, which means entering death. God told them this, that surely if you eat the fruit of the tree, you shall die. Death will enter with your disobedience. And Satan's aim is to do just that, to convince mankind to rebel against God and therefore to die. So Satan's work has always been, in essence, murder. 
death. You can see this in the words of Jesus, right? The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Again, his aim is to kill and destroy. Uh, That is what the enemy is up to. That is his mission. That is what he is attempting to do. And so in this way, he wields sin and death as his weapon. How to do that in the garden? Did God really say? Eat of the fruit. Have your eyes open. Be wise. God doesn't want you to enjoy what he has. Taste of it. Sin was the weapon that he uses. It's, by the way, still the primary weapon that he uses. And sin and death are closely tied together. All we'd have to do is turn over to Romans to see Paul walk through that at length as we did a few years ago. Paul makes this point uh, very clear that sin and death are linked closely together. And so again, Satan came and tempted mankind and has always been at work to uh, force mankind or push mankind, if you will, into rebellion against God, to tempt men to, uh, to sin. There's all these pictures that are given to us in the Scriptures. Now, that is what Satan's aim is. But praise God, Satan wasn't given the final word. Satan's weapon is the fear of death. It is sin. It is death itself. But he wasn't given the last word. His power is limited. He worked to bring mankind into death. That was his mission. He loves to accuse us before God, but God does not give him the final word in the matter. And that's what this passage is all about. God has the final word and God has the plan. In that plan, Satan was always to fall under eternal judgment in the lake of fire. That's told to us over and over again. Uh, The angels that rebelled, left their proper abode, are reserved for judgment on that day. There is no question what will happen to them. And it tells us in the upcoming text, in fact, verse 16, the text we'll begin with next week, for indeed He does not give aid to angels. He did not come to save angels. He did not come to rescue them from their fallen state. And there's a lot that can be said about that and thought about that. But He does come to give aid to the seed of Abraham. That is us. He comes to rescue angels. Humans who have fallen into sin. And through the very sin that Satan helped to tempt mankind into. Now that doesn't absolve us. That's why there's a penalty of death upon mankind. But again, recognize from the very beginning this was the work Satan was uh, engaging in uh, in his rebellion against God. And so from the very beginning he's attempted to bring all of us to death through sin. And in one sense, he succeeded, didn't he? In that initial sense, we all fell in Adam. Adam's sin is upon all our account. All have sinned, right? Fallen short of the glory of God. All like sheep have gone astray. We can go through all those things that Paul gives us in Romans, quoting from the Old Testament, and we see that they're true. And yet what's amazing about what we're being told here is that God had a plan to save sinners from their sin. And the most brilliant part is He would use the enemy's weapon against Him to undo Him. Think about that for a moment. If death is Satan's powerful tool, Christ entered the world fully man that He might die a death for sinners, His priestly work. But the early church recognized an ironic beauty in all of this. Tried to capture this when we were walking through the Apostles' Creed in our blog post and we came to the one about He descended to the dead. The early church proclaimed 
the amazing irony of this. Christ died for sinners, though he himself was sinless. And so the question is, how could death hold him? The only way death has hold on any of us is that we are sinners. Christ died on our behalf, but he himself was not a sinner. How could death hold him? How could the grave keep him? The irony is it can't. And in this way, death was undone. The one who death had no claim on entered death and overthrew it. It's an amazing thing to consider. Christ went into the grave to show that he truly died. That's what the Heidelberg Catechism says. But neither the grave nor death could actually hold him. And so he arose. We celebrate that all the time. It's the the truth of the gospel. It's not just that he died for our sins, but he arose. And because He is risen, we too in Him shall rise. To go a little bit further, the early church proclaimed that when Christ died, He went to the place of the dead. And that when He was there, He took the keys of death in Hades. Jesus in Revelation 1.18 says, I hold the keys to death and Hades. What does He mean? He means that He has taken this and that He holds it for His people. In other words, by dying, He atoned for our sin, yes, reconciling His people to God. But He also took from Satan the very weapon with which He had preyed upon His victims. And that is death. The very weapon that He wielded against us, Christ ripped it from His hands. It's pictured in Revelation as the keys. However you want to picture it, that's what He did. He took it from Him. Now when He accuses the Lord's people... The answer is that the sins of the people of God are atoned for, covered, paid for. They're taken as far as the east is from the west, or as David said, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. But it was done in such a way as to silence the accusations of the devil, to silence them. You know, one of the things that Paul tries to develop, or I think I should say does develop, inspired by the Holy Spirit in Romans, is this. He says that the gospel is the answer to how God could be both just and the justifier of His people. Now, the important thing to think about there is if God said, I'm just going to declare these people righteous, though we are unrighteous, He Himself is no longer just. But if He desires to reconcile to himself fallen sinners, there must be some way that he is the justifier of men. And what Paul recognizes, what Luther recognizes, what what we recognize today is this simple truth, that the gospel is the way in which he could justify mankind through the atonement of Christ and himself remain perfectly just and holy. No sin is overlooked. It is paid in full. It is finished upon the cross. And yet we can be justified because Christ, therefore, if we trust in Him, took our sin upon His account on the cross, and now we stand in His perfect righteousness. Just as our sin was imputed to Him, now His perfect righteousness is imputed to us. We literally stand in His perfect account. And what that means is when the devil comes to say, uh, well, now uh, Rick is a, a pretty dreadful person. Let me go through a list of things I've noticed he's done through the years. God says, what are you talking about? His law-keeping is perfect. Not because my law-keeping was perfect, 
but because Christ's law-keeping was perfect. I stand in Him, robed in His glory, as His brethren. Now, my friends, there is much that needs to be said about this that we don't have time to go into today, about what that means, living the Christian life, that we don't take sin lightly, that we don't enter into it flippantly. We are called to live holy lives, but we recognize that we are flesh and blood, fallen people, rescued by a great Savior, but a people whose sins are taken as far as the east is from the west in Christ. We stand no longer in condemnation, no longer in condemnation, but in the righteousness of Christ. And what that did was that destroyed Satan. Now this word we've got to be uh, careful with because this word, kartageo, it actually means to undo or subdue or to take away, we would not say Satan has been destroyed. It's just trying to find an English word that translates from the Greek. And a, and a single word that sums up as closely as we can to what's being said. If you look at the front of your bulletin, you'll notice that we said Satan's power rendered useless. That's really what it's saying. It's saying that what Christ did was cut the knees out from under Satan. He has nothing to stand on before the people of God. He's got no weapon to wield against us. Not this ultimate weapon anymore. We don't have to fear death. He can't wield that over our heads. He can't wield sin over our heads in the same way. It doesn't mean he doesn't try to. We sing this morning, when Satan tempts me to despair, that's a reality. That's a reality. But our answer is to look upon the one who purchased us, who atoned for our sins, through whose work our sins are taken as far as the east is from the west. We look to Jesus and we have a confidence. In fact, the only time we ever do despair is when we take our eyes off Jesus and what He's done for us. So again, the gospel reminds us that Satan has been rendered useless in that sense. He cannot hold the, uh, the, the sting of death over us. Death has lost its sting in Christ Jesus. Yes, we die, but no longer is death an entrance into eternal judgment for those in Christ. Instead, now death, and this was one of the ancient uh, theologians, I can't remember which one here, but I just remember this quote. He said, death is no longer the entrance to eternal judgment. Now death is the entrance door into eternal life. That's what we have in Christ. And that's why the sting of death is removed. Now I want to get to our final point here and we'll be quick. I know we're running long here, but let's look at this verse 15 because he goes on. It's not just that he came to destroy uh, him who had the power of death, that is the devil, but it also tells us that he came to be the liberator of his brethren. And that's the good news of this text. It matters what Christ came and accomplished. There is hope because of what Christ came and accomplished. As John wrote in uh, 1 John 3, 8, Christ entered for this purpose that He might destroy the works of the devil. And that is what Christ actually did. For those in Christ, He destroyed His work. He took away His weapon. He rendered Him fangless for us in Christ. Christ released us from subjection and fear of death. Now, that is glorious news. It doesn't mean we uh, don't look at death in, in a sense as something that is 
to be avoided, but at the same time we recognize as we grow in our faith that to live is Christ and to die is gain, as Paul said. It doesn't mean that we don't recognize that in some way death is strange and unnatural. It was never what God intended for us in our creation, and yet it is a reality. But it also tells us that uh, because of our faith in Christ, we have an eternal life that transcends the grave. Just as Christ uh, rose from the grave, we in Him shall likewise rise. 1 Corinthians 15, we could go there and exposit an entire chapter on this very point. If He arose, we too shall rise to risen life in Him. So Christ came to liberate us from bondage to sin and death and despair, giving us hope in Him. No longer are we under the bondage, by the way, of sin to Satan. And, and if you look at verse 15 again, notice what it says. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now we could go back and talk about uh, how as fallen sinners we are uh, slaves to sin. Paul makes this argument very clearly in Romans. We are slaves to sin. And yet there's another truth here in which in some sins we are in bondage to the devil uh, in Adam. Listen to what is written in Acts 26, 18. It's Paul speaking, but he's quoting the Lord. He says this, that he will send Paul out, quote, in order to turn them from darkness to light. So from darkness to light, from death to life, we can get that image, and from the power of Satan to God. You see the parallelism there? In darkness, we are in bondage to Satan in some sense, aren't we? That they may receive, he says, the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What glorious words. What glorious words. But there's a parallelism here, isn't there? To be in sin is to be in darkness, and under the power of Satan, to know Christ and to trust in Him is to be free from darkness and brought into the light. It's to be freed from sin and death and brought into righteousness and life. To be freed from the power of Satan's bondage and set free to become a bondservant to Christ. That's what we're given. It's to be freed from being a hell-bound rebel against the all-glorious King and to be made a son of God by adoption. A son of God by adoption. So much so that our own glorious King is not ashamed to call us His brethren. What a beautiful and glorious promise that is. He is not ashamed to call us His brethren. So in closing, there's only one question that really matters. Can this be said of you? Can it be said of you? Can it be said of you that you have turned to Christ as the living hope that renders useless the greatest weapons that the enemy has? Can it be said of you that you have found freedom from darkness and walked into His matchless light? That you have left the bondage of death and entered into eternal life in Christ? That you've been freed from the bondage of sin and death and set free to serve our glorious King? And if that can't be said of you, why not? You hear the promises of God here in this text. That you, by faith, can enter into Christ's righteousness, having Him atoned for your work, your sin. That you can be made right with the holy and righteous God, in Him reconciled to our Heavenly Father. That you can have life eternal and freedom from all the things that plague mankind, like hopelessness and uh, fright 
terror, all those things that by nature men have fallen victim to. You can have freedom from all those things in Christ. It doesn't mean we don't deal with them, by the way. But we have a freedom in Christ from them. And they're offered to us in Christ Jesus by trusting in Him. My friends, are you trusting in Christ or in yourself? I'm asking you to hear the word of the Lord. He offers pardon to sinners as they trust in Him and His completed work. The very thing this author is telling us today. So if He's speaking to you today, answer the call.